Hello, church. My name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. I just want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in today. Uh, We want to remind you that here at Austin Oaks, uh, we desire to be a church that's simply about Jesus. And our desire is to help people meet, know, and follow him in their lives. And so this is a perfect time for you to be joining us if you're new, because we are in the midst of a series that's all about Jesus. We've titled this Be the Movement. And we are walking through a book called The Gospel of Luke, which was written by a man named Luke, but he was writing it to another person who had questions about Jesus and wanted him to research and find out all the facts of who this is. And so that's exactly what Luke was doing, was investigating the life of Jesus and everything that it entails. And so as we have been walking through this, we've been looking at kind of the preliminary uh, stories that we hear about Jesus, of his birth narrative and various things like that. But we're just about to get to the section where Jesus is going to begin his ministry. A lot of the things that uh, we begin to hear and know about Jesus are facts that we know about Jesus. But before Jesus comes on the scene, there's this person called John, often referred to as John the Baptist. And John was a person who prepared the way for Jesus, kind of a foreteller or a proclaimer or announcing that Jesus was coming. And, And he doesn't just drop down into the scene. John's story, just as Jesus' story, is woven into a much larger story, a narrative that's been taking place for hundreds and even thousands of years. And today we're going to see that as we look at the message that God has for people, for his people, through John to prepare them for this person of Jesus who's coming. So four things we want to look at in this text today as we kind of walk through this historical narrative talking about John's ministry of preparation for Jesus. The first is the context of God's message that he has for him. What was the context in which John is stepping into to bring this message that God has for him? The second is the content of that message. What is it that John has to say? What is he doing as he comes onto the scene to prepare for Jesus? Then we want to look at the outcome of that message. Uh, What was supposed to happen once a person heard this message? uh, What were they supposed to do with it? What was it supposed to result in? And lastly, what's the source of it? Where does this message come from? Or where is it that this change that John is calling for, this preparation that he's calling from, where does that come from once a person embraces it? So the context, the content, the outcome, and the source. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, let's start in Luke chapter 3. Luke is the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their New Testament. So turn to that third gospel. Go to chapter chapter 3, and we're going to start reading Uh, The first six verses uh, will give us this context for which John gives this message. Read with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is, 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 is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of the Lord. So these first six verses give us some context. They give us both some historical context and some theological context. See, we've seen already in this gospel story uh, a lot of history, a lot of names and places and dates and times, because that's a big part of what God's doing. God has always woven his story within the history of mankind. And I think this is one of the unique aspects of Christianity. It's not just something that's plunked down to one unique guru, so to speak, and they just write it all down and we're supposed to believe them. God has woven his story and his history throughout human history using many different people in many different times. And he's recorded actual events. And these authors that talk about him record actual, factual, historical events. And that, I believe, adds incredible credibility to the realness and the authenticity of what these authors are writing. But we've also seen something else, that in these stories of history and in these people that are recorded, as often as God records these specific people, and in this case, he's giving us all kinds of unique information. He's given us international history. He says it's Tiberius Caesar is reigning at that time. He's an international ruler over the empire of Rome. And then he's moving down to more local and regional leaders. So he talks about the rulers of Judea and those of the regions around it. It would be very similar today to someone saying, oh yeah, you remember when that event happened and and Joe Biden was president and Kamala Harris was the vice president and Governor Abbott was, you know, the governor of Texas and and Adler was the mayor of Austin. Oh, and during that time, uh, Brandon Ziske was the senior pastor of Austin Oaks Church. So that's exactly what he's doing. He's giving these specifics that are talking about what was going on in the internationally, what was happening locally, and then even what was happening spiritually within the people of Israel when he talks about the high priests of that time. See, someone that's trying to weave a story that's not true would not give this much historical background, would not try to be this accurate because it would be very easy for someone to track down some people, because when this gospel was written, people were still alive that would have witnessed these events. That would have made it very easy for someone to track them down and discredit what was being said if it wasn't actually true. So God using history and weaving things through history says something about the credibility of the story that he's communicating, of the truths that he's giving us through his word. But what's interesting is as many powerful people and people of great position and power that are named in this, that's not how God's message comes. It's another unique aspect of the context of God's history. And we've seen that up to this point. When his son was born, when God sends his own son, Jesus, he doesn't do it through people of great power and people of significant position. He actually does it through a couple who would be considered poor Uh, in our day and age, and even in their day and age. And he wasn't born in a place of prominence and pomp and circumstance, but of great simplicity. And we're going to see the same thing here. When he calls John, it says he calls him out of the wilderness. His message comes to John out of a place of 
simplicity, and humility. And I think this is the first thing that we want to learn as we look at the history of John's message and the history of Jesus and how God operates is God's work of salvation is woven through a history of power and position, but it comes from a message of humility and weakness. You see, God's weaving his story through a world that clamors for power and position and politics and money and all these things that we think are significant in this world. But God's message comes through humility and weakness. In fact, I love how Paul writes this about the gospel in 1 Corinthians when he says, uh, but we, uh, the apostles, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You see, God doesn't need the positions and the power and the glamour of this world to accomplish his work. In fact, he chooses to come through the most humble to reveal how he is available to all people. And that's a big part of Luke's message as he's writing to Theophilus, who is someone who would normally have been an outsider. So not only do we see this historical context, but we see this theological context too, because he says in verses uh, four through six, that these words, these things that John came to do had been recorded by the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was written many hundreds of years prior to this. And so John's ministry is predicted hundreds of years before he even comes. So not only is it historically true, it happened during this time, but it is theologically true. and, And it's true of a story that had been written many, many years prior. In fact, even more so as we're gonna see as we go, John is considered to be the final Old Testament prophet. And up to this point, here's some more context. God had not spoken to his people for over 400 years. This was called a period of silence. And if you go back to the very last book of the Old Testament called Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament before you come to the Gospel of Matthew. The last couple chapters of Malachi in particular, chapter three and four, are speaking very clearly about God talking to his people and telling them, this is what I'm going to send to you. This is what's going to happen to you. And this is whom I'm going to send to you uh, when I come to visit you again, so to speak. And he's speaking of John the Baptist. You can read the last part of Malachi chapter four, and he's also preparing for this messenger, this forerunner that would come and share with them uh, prior to his sending his own son. So there's the context. Now we see the content of his gospel. And it says in verse seven, he then said to the crowds who came out of the, to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, you got to love John's preaching style. 
Uh, John would never be called or criticized for being uh, a seeker-sensitive type of preacher. I mean, the first words out of his mouth and his message is, you brood of vipers or you bunch of snakes. And I thought about welcoming everyone this morning that way, saying, hey, welcome to Austin Oaks, you bunch of snakes. But, you know, I just don't know that that would go down all that well this morning. But here's what's so interesting about this, is as you read this passage, and as you really dig into it, you realize this wasn't a one-time message for John. Read this passage. It says, this is what he was typically doing. John was going about in the wilderness warning and preaching this message. He was kind of like an itinerant preacher who would get up and share this message with the different people that were coming to this unique area day in and day out. And so Luke is summarizing the gist of what John was preaching to these people at this time. It's pretty amazing that people would come to listen to him. But as we'd mentioned, God hadn't spoken to his people in 400 years. And so when John comes on the scene, it was something unique. And so people were flocking to come out and hear what he had to say. Here's what's interesting, though. You got to love it. John, after calling them snakes and asking them why, you know, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He then says in verse 8, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. So you got to love that. Anytime a preacher says, therefore, you know, they're, they're getting to the conclusion of their message. So I'm, at least John, like one verse in, he's already at the conclusion and it might've been a harsh message, but at least it was short and everyone was able to like get to lunch before everyone else was on that day. Yeah, that's, that's probably not why, right? But it's just a summary. It's just a little joke, but, but as you look at this, let's dive into what John's saying. His message was about repentance. It says up in verse three, he was preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So even though his message may have been strong, the intent of that message was repentance for the sake of forgiveness. Now this brings us back to our context a little bit. We can look at this message and kind of plunk and drop down into it and think, man, that seems really harsh. Why was this guy like speaking so harshly? And if he's speaking from God, why was God coming across so strong to his own people? And that's a great question. It may seem a bit odd unless we understand the big picture of why God was bringing this message. And the big picture is this that for well over 400 years, God's people had been living in disobedience for him. Not just general disobedience, they had been living in a way that was very contrary to what God had called them to do. Almost like a, a disobedient child in a household. You know, when someone, when your child doesn't listen to something you ask them to do one time, you know, you're not real harsh. You don't tend to raise your voice a whole lot. You'll just remind them. But when it happens over and over and over again, and then when there's just plain stubborn disobedience towards something that you've asked them to do, my guess is that most parents are going to raise up their level of how they speak to someone who is over and over not doing what they're being asked to do. It would kind of like being uh, coming into, uh, uh, say, a boss at a business who you walk into his office at the moment that he's firing an employee. And you may hear that and go, wow, that seems really harsh. He's firing that employee. But until you have the context of maybe years 
of embezzlement or of failing to do his job or of creating a, a toxic environment in the workplace. And until you have that whole context for which that message comes, then suddenly it makes sense that, yeah, that person was not a real solid employee and they were bringing about a whole lot of turmoil in this organization. And so it did demand a little bit of a strong response. And that's exactly what's happening here. God's people for hundreds of years had been disobedient to the covenant that he had made with them. And now he's bringing a strong message, a harsh message, but look at the intent. The intent is to lead them toward repentance. And the word repentance is, is a kind of one of those biblical words, those spiritual or churchy words that many of us maybe don't quite know what that means. So I want to sit on and look at that a little bit in this passage to get a clear understanding of what that message is. The word for repentance is a word that just is metanoia is the Greek word. It means to simply to change your mind. But within the context of this, it, it has more tied to it. Meaning when a person truly changes their mind, meaning when they think differently about something, then they act differently, their attitude is different, their desires are different. It brings about a change in a person. When you think something and, and you really believe something different to be true, it's gonna affect how you live your life. And that's exactly what John was calling them to. And there's several things that are required when we repent, some things that are significant in here we need to see. One of them is repentance leads to a personal recognition of our sin. Okay, it means we recognize, man, I've been a, a kind of a rotten. I, I've made some big mistakes. I've blown it. I've hurt people. I've offended God. I haven't done things his way. Repentance has that recognition of realizing there's personal sin in my life against others, and most importantly, against God. See, we as humans tend to think we know what's best. We create our guidelines and we decide what's, you know, friendly to this world, what things you know, we can eat and what we can't eat. You know, we shouldn't kill animals is a big one now, but we don't have no problem killing plants. We decide what is the higher levels of life and what isn't. But the fact is we haven't created any of this. And anytime we try to impose our values of being God on this creation, that's offensive to God. That's disregarding the dignity and the honor that only he deserves. And so repentance, one aspect of it is recognizing I have sinned against God by not submitting my attitudes and my truths and my beliefs to his beliefs because he's the creator of this universe. The second thing is repentance recognizes the damage that sin causes and the judgment it deserves. And we see that with John. He's saying, you know, as he calls them snakes, he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Meaning sin incurs wrath. Sin is going to be judged. God is going to judge sin and he always has been willing to judge sin. But he's also been willing to show grace and mercy by passing that judgment of sin onto someone or something else. From the Old Testament, he showed mercy through the animal sacrifices and allowing a person to offer a sacrifice that then would, in a sense, occur the wrath or the death, the judgment that their sin deserved. 
in order to spare them. God was showing them mercy. And we see that as we head into the New Testament, that God is preparing them for a new sacrifice that would fully remove the sins that they had committed against God and against others. So repentance recognizes that sin does cause damage. It hurts things and it requires judgment. Just as any person, Christian or not in our world, would believe that there are certain things that when brought to a court of law need to be punished. If you've been violated in a horrible way, your private property or you personally, most people, almost everyone I know is at some point gonna say, yeah, that requires some kind of judgment upon it. It's wrong. Everyone has some standard of wrong. Repentance acknowledges that it's God's standard that is ultimately the best standard. Repentance we see results in life change, meaning something's gonna change in my life. And he says, therefore, John says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. When our mind truly changes about who God is, it's going to lead to our life changing. Now that's gonna be a slow and gradual process, but it's gonna happen. Repentance leads to life change because we think differently about sin. The things that we once thought were okay and acceptable, we are no longer gonna think that way about them. And now we're gonna think that this person of God who, is, who has been so kind and loving towards us, they know what's best for us. And when my thoughts are his thoughts, then my actions are gonna follow suit with what he sees as best. And lastly, repentance recognizes that I have nothing to contribute to my salvation. That's what repentance also recognizes. And we see this here when John says, and don't start saying to yourselves in verse eight, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. See, one of the things that was happening in Israel, one of the lies that they'd been believing for a long time was that just, it's kind of this inner club mentality that just because you were born an Israelite, then you're good with God. You got everything coming your way and it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you're born in the right place to the right people in the right community, then you're good to go with God. And that's not true. That's why God was calling, this was his Israelite people to repentance. They were born physically into his family, but they weren't spiritually part of his family. And Paul talks about that later in the book of Romans. He says, not all Israel is Israel, meaning not all physical Israelites are spiritual Israelites, meaning actually believe and trust in the covenant that God has given them. And that can be true of us as well. This is a generalization for something that many of us are resting on our own laurels thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I've never really done anything too bad. You know, I'm a lot better than a lot of other people that I know around me. As soon as we start using those kinds of arguments to describe why we believe we're worthy of forgiveness or of being in heaven, we recognize that we've never truly repented before God. We've never changed our mind about how God sees us as humans and how he has provided for us for the forgiveness of sins. And repentance recognizes that I have nothing to contribute to my own salvation, that I need someone else or something else to do the saving. That's why it's called salvation because salvation is someone else saving you and me. 
And that's what John's preparing for as he prepares the way for Jesus. So we see this, that God's message to people uh, calls us to turn from our pride and sinfulness to humility and God's righteousness. That's what this second message or second section tells us. The content of God's message is that it calls people to turn from our pride and our sinfulness to humility and God's righteousness. So as strong as it might come across, it's confronting our pride. It's confronting our brokenness and our sinfulness, and it's leading us to humility and God's righteousness to save us. Thirdly, what's the outcome of repentance? What does it result in? We see this in verses 10 through 14 as John elaborates on something where he says, you know, produce fruit consistent with repentance. We're gonna see it in these verses. He says, what then shall we do? The crowds asked him. And in verse 11, John replies to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. So here's how I would summarize this section in terms of what's the outcome of repentance. What do we see in our lives? Summarizing and according to these handful of verses we see here, that the fruit of repentance leads us to an other-centered life of generosity and contentment. That's the fruit of repentance that we see in this passage. Consider this for a moment and look at what John says. He says to the crowds, hey, if you have two shirts, Share one with someone else who has none. So it's instead of what we often do is we use our extra or our wealth or our positions to kind of create separation. That's kind of how we live nowadays. We separate ourselves into different neighborhoods, into different schools, into different activities. We use our wealth to create division. Where God says in repentance that as Christians, we should use our wealth to create unity, to cross that gap. That if we have two or we have more of something and someone else has less, then we should give of what we have so that someone else who is an outsider because of what they lack can be an insider now through grace. Because that's what God has done with us. We were all outsiders to him and Jesus was rich and we were poor. But the Bible says that he became poor so that we might become rich. He says to uh, a tax collector, and uh, what should we do? And he says, don't collect more than what you have been authorized. If you were a tax collector in this setting, uh, which he's in the land of Israel at this time, so probably it was a Jewish tax collector, the Jewish tax collector would have been working for the Roman Empire. So they were already seen as kind of outsiders anyways, but they were to tax their own Jewish people uh, because they were under the Roman authority. And so what would happen is, is a, a higher up tax person would tell this local tax person to say, hey, you owe me a debt. If you want to be a tax collector, this is what your region should bring in. Let's say it was $10,000. So that person would buy that tax region for $10,000. They'd bid on it. And if they got it for $10,000, then they could 
collect taxes in that region and they'd, ha they'd have the right to collect up to $10,000, but then, and that would include their salary, but their goal was to collect more. And they would often use the soldiers that we see later to extract, extract or extort more money from the taxpayers than what they really should have. And as a result, these taxpayers became really rich. So what we see here is they're using their position. It wasn't a bad thing to collect taxes. And John doesn't say, you sinner, don't you dare collect taxes. Don't do that work. He just says, no, do it with integrity and do it with contentment. Don't collect any more than what you should or what you deserve. And the same with the soldiers. He said, don't take money from anyone by force or by false accusation. And because they, they would actually work often hand in hand with the tax collectors and use their force, their position in the military to extract more money. And John says, don't extort. And he says, and be content with your wages. So let me ask you something. Of all the things that John could have said, they would have been the fruit of repentance. If we think of someone repenting nowadays, if you're a Christian or we're in the church today or Christians in the church today, and someone came to you and said, hey, what would be a sign of someone who's truly repented, who's turned their heart away from broken sinfulness and toward God? What, 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 would, what would some clear signs or fruit be of that person repenting? What would you say? I wonder if we would say some of the same things that John did. Because John says some things that, that I think have uh, maybe fallen deaf on the ears of our modern church. I shouldn't say our modern church. I should say our Western church, our American church. I wonder if our own wealth and our own uh, accumulation of wealth has not blinded us to some of the key commands and principles that we see in this passage about what it looks like to truly be repentant and under God's authority. How do we, how we relate to others in, in the realm of money and integrity uh, reveal a lot about our relationship with God and walking with him. Money will either separate us and we will use it because two of the, the greatest sins and, and sinful desires we have as humans. One is greed, and we rarely do we ever confess that. The other is uh, the approval of man. And oddly enough, greed and money fuels that a lot because what we can purchase with money also is often our means of getting the approval of man. Like what I can drive, what I can wear, what I can buy, where I can live, the schools I can go to, the events I can participate in. A lot of those things fuel and feed our desire to be approved by man. And those are some key things that John addresses that ultimately God is addressing in us. I don't know that we realize this, but do, do we ever, you ever th stop to think that there is a set amount of wealth in the world? There's a set amount. There's no more wealth being made and there's no more wealth being destroyed. When someone gets really wealthy, the only way a person can become wealthy is for someone else to have lesser wealth. 
there's no possible way in the world for everyone to be wealthy because it's a relative scale of having and not having. And it's a set of values that values one thing and not another. So let's say all the wealth was wrapped up in gold, for example, to simplify it. Not everyone could possess every piece of gold. And the same is true of even our monetary system and other things that, that everyone cannot rise in wealth in the same way. It just can't happen. Someone has to lose wealth for someone else to gain wealth. And I don't know that we really think about that. Nor do we think about how uh, the values or the things that our world sees as valuable are not necessarily consistent with what God sees as valuable. And so even though we can believe as Americans that our capitalistic society is really the best form of government or society, and it's not to say that it's bad, but we don't recognize that there are all kinds of sinful desires behind it, greed and the approvable of man, that really drive our capitalistic system and allow us to believe we're worthy of the wages that we have or we deserve this. And we always tend to think that we deserve more or we deserve a little bit more money. But every time we long for that more money and every time we crave and we clamor for that more, it has to be at the expense of someone else having less. That's the only way it can work. And I wonder, I wonder is if we head into the second coming of Christ, much like the first coming where there'll be a forerunner as well, if God will not be calling his church in the same way he was calling Israel to be more mindful of those who are outsiders to us. If we'll have to be forced to, to reconcile with our greed and our approval of man and, and even the things that we've come to take for granted here in our country and even woven into our Christianity that really aren't necessarily true. That repentance causes us to wanna to use our wealth and our generosity for others, not to separate ourselves, not to benefit ourselves. When we continue to pile up wealth for ourselves and rather, it's not saying that we can't make money, it's just what we do with it. Do we do something with it that betters other people's lives, that, that welcomes them in and that helps bring them into the kingdom and does just as John's saying, uh, shows that we have been those who have been welcomed into God's kingdom or does our wealth continue to separate us more and more and more from the realities and pains of this world? So how do we get this kind of repentance? We've seen the context, we've seen the content, and now we've seen the outcome of it, that it should cause us to be other-centered and generous and content with what we have and willing to give to welcome in those who are outsiders. Where does this kind of a, a life of repentance come from? And I think we see that in these last few verses. We'll have to dig at it a little bit, but I want you to see as we read this last passage, I want you to see what fueled John's life. John was a guy who was a little bit odd. We would, we would look at him today, if we came around today, and we'd think this guy is nuts. He's living out in the wilderness. He's got like weird clothing, kind of wears the same burlap sack every day. He's eating locusts, you know, with honey. And he just wanders around in the wilderness. Like everything that we value as Westerners is like not John at all. And yet, interestingly enough, 
Jesus would later on in the Gospel of Luke say about John that John is the greatest man ever born to woman at this point. See, in God's eyes, John is of great value. But in our Western eyes, not so much. So what is it about John that makes him so unique, that he has such a heart of repentance, that he is so sold out for the message of Christ and what he's talking about, that he would live the lifestyle that he lives to communicate the message that he communicates. Watch with me in verses 15 and following. He says, now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. This is what I want to leave you with in this last section, that the source of repentance is a life that is simply about Jesus. The source of repentance is a life that is simply about Jesus. That was John's life. John considered Jesus so significant, so weighty in his life, that even after this incredible ministry that he has, even after being called by Jesus, the greatest man ever born to woman, John had a perspective of the significance and value of Jesus that led him to say something like this, that says, I am not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandals. Now to drive that home, you have to understand a little bit about Jewish context. Jews, and even some of the teachers and rabbis of this time would have slaves that were Jewish slaves that would take off their shoes often. And if you traveled in sandals and in in streets where there was horses and dirt, your feet would get pretty mucked up and be pretty nasty by the time you arrived at your destination. And the servants were in charge of taking off their sandals and washing their feet and doing that process so that person was clean to, to move throughout the home. But even in their custom, a Jewish slave he wasn't even required to unloose the the sandals of his master. It was saved for a non-Jewish slave, someone who was even considered lesser in value in one sense. They were the ones that would have to undo the sandals and do the foot washing. And John is comparing himself to that type of a person in view of his master as much as he accomplished and as much as he did, he considered it so little in value and worth compared to the person of Jesus Christ and what he would come to do. Jesus was so significant to John that it meant nothing what people thought of how he dressed or how he came across or what he spoke. He was so clear and so true to the message that God had given him, that all he wanted to do 
was pleased his father. It reminds me of a, a story about a woman, an elderly woman, um, who was cleaning out her attic and going through some of the stuff she'd stored up there over the years, and, and she came across a necklace. And the necklace had a few diamonds in it. It had one little bit larger diamond in the middle of it. And she got, th- saw it there and goes, hmm, you know, before I just kind of toss this stuff away, I probably, or give it away, I should probably get this appraised and just see uh, uh, what it's worth. And so she dusts it off from the the trunk that she'd found it in the attic. She walks out of the attic and the next day she heads to a, a diamond store to have an appraiser appraise it. And the appraiser grabs the diamond and his little scope and starts looking at it and he's glancing and you know she sees kind of his eyes kind of get large a little bit and then he turns it a little bit and focuses it down and again his eyes get really large and and she's kind of curious, going like, what's going on? Is there something wrong with this? And so finally, when he's done, he's examined it from several different angles. She says, is everything okay? And he says, uh, uh, ma'am, he says, do you have any idea the value of this diamond here? And she goes, no, I, I just, like I said, I brought it here from out of my attic. And he says, this diamond is worth tens of millions of dollars. To the woman's incredible shock, and here she lived somewhat humbly in her home, but uh, from that diamond, she then went back home and, and from it completely rearranged her home. In fact, she set up this whole case in a, a central place within her home and it had an incredible security system that would protect it and it had been shined up and it was presented there and her whole home had to be restructured and a security system put in so that she could showcase it there and put that at the very front of her home and now everything in her home and all the things that she had situated kind of were revolved and focused on that diamond. And what's so interesting about that story is that story is maybe a lot like how God is to us in many of our lives. We may have God in our life, kind of like that woman had the diamond in her attic. Sure, he's there. There's a spot for him in our house. We got him up there. We dust him off maybe every so often or we're aware of his presence. But most of our life just goes on uh, as if he's not that significant or there isn't that great a value. But this woman recognized the value of this diamond. And even though the diamond had been present in her life for so long, the moment she understood the significance of him, of this diamond, the weightiness of this diamond, or as the Bible would say, the glory of that diamond. It totally changed how she lived her life and how she arranged and situated her home. And everything in her home now revolved around the significance and weightiness of this diamond. That's ultimately the heart of repentance. And the source of repentance is Jesus Christ. And until you recognize his weightiness, his significance in your life, until you come to a point where you realize that everything that you have, your value, your wealth, your talents, everything revolves around him and should be used for his glory, then we've never really repented. We've maybe just kept him up in the attic as a piece of our lives, but not the core and part and parcel of who we are. 
Because when that happens, when we recognize that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich, that Jesus became our sin on the cross, he took our sin upon himself on the cross so that we might take upon us his righteousness. We're just gonna keep him as part of our lives. And as long as it's convenient, we'll include him. You know, John would go on to be beheaded by Herod for his testimony about Jesus. But Jesus would go on to be mocked, to be beaten, to be crucified. Yet his physical crucifixion was the easiest part of his death. It was the wrath that he experienced from his own father, the wrath that he willingly took for your sin and for mine that was the most difficult part of his work. The rejection that he felt in those moments from his father were deeper and greater than anything we could possibly comprehend. And when we come to realize what he has done for you and for me, it will drive into your soul and fuel it for a repentance that will cause us to recognize the damage of sin and its brokenness to God, recognize the judgment that it deserves, recognize that we bring nothing to the table for our salvation. And most of all, recognize that Jesus offers us everything that we need to become a child of God that he is gathering his grain with that baptism of the Holy Spirit that he talks about. That's the spirit that he places in you and in me when we believe in him and gathers that grain into his barn, that we are part of his field, that we are part of his flock, that we are part of his harvest. And the fire he will reserve for the chaff, the wasted, useless part of the grain that has rejected Jesus and wants no part of him. Church, this is a message of repentance and it results in a changed life that's reoriented around Jesus and is sold out in using whatever we have to reach out and be kind and generous to those who are outside his kingdom. And it's a repentance that will cause us to praise him and worship him and make everything that we do in our lives simply about him. So repentance isn't simply a one-time thing in our lives, even though the first step is that. Maybe you're here today and you're like that woman. Maybe you've heard about Jesus or you were born into a Christian family or you've attended here or attended a church for many years, but Jesus has been part of your life, but he hasn't been the centerpiece of your life. Today's the time to make that change. And just as these soldiers and tax collectors and crowd said to John, what must I do to demonstrate this repentance? First repent, first recognize the sin that you have that separates you from God. But secondly, recognize the significance of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on that cross that he willingly took that punishment for you and he became poor so that you might become rich in him. And when you recognize that, it's going to change 
how you see other people, how you treat other people, how you relate to your money, your resources, your position, your power. You will use it to love and serve and include others rather than separate yourself and seek approval of others. And if you've done that already, then repentance is just an ongoing practice of us continuing to realign parts of our lives with who Jesus is and the truth that he communicates. And I don't know what that might be for you today, but my guess is that God is revealing that to your heart as you listen to this. Whatever he is speaking to you today, it's worth it to let that go, to turn from that thing that's distracting you from your purpose in Jesus and return to him and trust him and obey him and do the things that demonstrate the repentance and the life and the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful for these truths. I'm so thankful that these stories that are recorded in the scriptures and in the gospel of Luke aren't just made up fables that someone came up with, but they're woven within the historical facts of history and the theological history of your word and your truth. Not only have you been weaving this story for hundreds of years, as we see in these prophecies predicting these events, but they are anchored within the history of our world. That you use real people in the midst of real situations. And those people that we often think are going to be our saviors, that are in positions of power and wealth, that are a very small, unique number of people, are not the ones that you choose to use. You choose to use a person based on the position of their heart in regards to you, not the position of their life in regards to the world. So Lord, help us to be a repentant people, a broken people who recognize who we are in light of your goodness and glory and who humbly realize that you sent your one and only son to take our sin upon himself and to offer us his perfect righteousness so that we could be part of your family that we could be welcomed into your inheritance, an inheritance that's far superior to anything we could gain in this world. And as we recognize that, Lord, may it make us hold what we have in this world with an open hands so that we can welcome others who are yet to know you and trust you and follow you into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.